0: Hello again everybody and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am once again your host, the one and only Kid Kong. We're back on weekly episodes because I have begun taking notes further in advance and I've actually got the notes ready for the next several episodes already ready to go. Last week, we finally finished off Bluthmas talking about Anastasia. It was a bit of a shorter episode, all things considered, and honestly I kind of knew that it was going to be because while... There's always information you can find about these kinds of things. I'm not a historical podcast, so there's only so much information that I personally have about the actual Romanovs and everything to give you without getting too off-topic on the movie itself. So, it was a little bit shorter than intended, but you know what? That's fine. It ended up being roughly in keeping with how long the other uh, Bluestem's movies were. The only difference, of course, being I had more to talk about with these Bluestem's movies. Whereas this time... I had the movie as well as the background. This week, we're going to be talking about one of the very few Michael Bay movies I actually enjoy, unironically. And I need to explain that statement a little bit because I enjoy Armageddon despite it not being a great movie. In fact, it was arguably the weaker of the two theme movies to come out that year. I also am not a great fan of Pearl Harbor, because the man took some liberties with uh, some of the actual historical events. You gotta be leery about that kind of thing. You really do. And I also, while I enjoy aspects of the 2014 and 2016 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies, I'll never forget the fact that the man wanted to make those movies, and he was going to have the turtles not be mutants, nor teenagers. They were going to be aliens. Want to let that statement sink in for a moment. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were going to be aliens. No, sir. Michael Bay, you do not get to do that. That being said, again, we are going to be talking about one of the few Michael Bay movies I actually unironically enjoy, the 2007 Transformers. Michael Bay has directed the, the Bad Boys series. He's also directed The Rock, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, The Island, Pain and Gain, while he's also produced The Hitcher, Friday the 13th remake, The Purge series, He was an executive producer on The Quiet Place and, of course, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The screenplay was written by Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman. The two of them have combined to work together on a lot of television shows. like They they both write predominantly for Fringe and Sleepy Hollow, but they also work together writing The Island, Mission Impossible 3, and these three-movie Star Trek series, Star Trek Into Darkness and Beyond. The story was written by John Rogers. Now, John Rogers also... Uh, contributed to the screenplay as well, but John Rogers is more known for American Outlaws, The Core, which is the other meteor-themed movie, and Catwoman. That's, (laughs) That's not the best thing in the world. Television wise, though, John Rogers wrote a lot of episodes for Jackie Chan Adventures, Leverage, and The Librarian's. The executive producer of the movie was Steven Spielberg. Now, there are other producers in this, but I'm going to get to them when I get to production notes because I want their names to be a little bit more fresh in your mind. I'm going to try and do that from now on where I might mention a producer here, but I'm going to do the majority of that during the actual explanations because sometimes it can be as many as 15 minutes before I get to the producers. And I don't want you guys to have forgotten that kind of a thing. You know what I mean? The production companies that worked together on this were DreamWorks, Hasbro, and the De Bonaventura Pictures which is founded and run by Lorenzo di Bonaventura. They have done Constantine, Four Brothers, Doom, 1408, Shooter, and G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. If you're noticing there's a pattern of certain movies appearing in these guys' backgrounds that are not really great cinema, it's, it's, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, Paramount Pictures, of course, was the distributing uh, company for it. To give you a brief synopsis on this movie, uh, basically... The Autobots and Decepticons find out that the Allspark, which is the only way to restore life to Cybertron, is on Earth, and an unwitting human named Sam Witwicky has "quote unquote" purchased one of the Autobots, Bumblebee. They get the rest of the Autobots to come down to help, but unfortunately, the Decepticons know about it as well, and it eventually leads to a climactic battle involving Megatron. It was produced on a budget of about 150 to 200 million dollars, give or take, and that one's I'll explain that one as well. Uh, Pulled in at $709.7 million at the box office. As I said before, personally, I love this movie. You know, and, and I'll elaborate a little bit more on that after I get done going through everything else about it. All right, y'all. Buckle up, because there's a lot of cast here. I'm going to break this down between the human cast, then the Autobots, then the Decepticons. Sam Witwicky was played by Shia LaBeouf. Now, Shia LaBeouf, of course, got his start on Disney's Even Stevens, but he's also appeared in the movie Holes, which I prefer the book to the movie, but the movie is not bad at all. He was also in iRobot, the greatest game ever played. He was in Constantine, Disturbia. He provided the main voice of the lead penguin in Surf's Up. He was in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. If you have not seen that movie, you are luckier than I am. He was in the sequel to Wall Street, Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, Lawless, which is actually a fantastic movie. He's also starring Tom Hardy, and the movie Fury. The character of Captain Lennox was played by Josh Duhamel. Now, Josh Duhamel, of course, got his start in... Win a date with Tad Hamilton, but he's also appeared in Turistas, Ramona and Beezus, Life as We Know It. He was in New Year's Eve, he was in Spaceman, and he also appeared more recently in Chips. Television-wise, he actually got his start with All My Children and then moved on to starring in the TNT series Las Vegas opposite James Caan. I love that show, personally. Michaela was played by Megan Fox. Now, Megan Fox uh, got her very first start doing a music video that was directed by... Michael Bay, as well as a commercial by him, and it's since gone on to do uh, Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, Jennifer's Body, Jonah Hex, This is 40. She appeared as April O'Neil in the TMNT movies, which to me is one of the worst casting choices imaginable for that role. She was also in Rogue, Till Death, and had a two-year run on New Girl. Sergeant F was played by Tyrese Gibson. I love Tyrese. Tyrese was a musician initially, and then forwarded into acting from there. He was in Baby Boy. He is in the Fast and Furious franchise. He was in the second movie. And then he started off appearing in, in the fourth movie. Uh, he was in Flight of the Phoenix, Annapolis, Four Brothers. I love that movie as well. He was in Death Race, Legion, Ride Along 2. And his most recent movie that he's going to be in is Morbius, which is not out yet because they keep pushing it back and they need to stop that. Agent Simmons, who was the head of Sector one of the heads of Sector 7, rather, is played by John Turturro. Now John Turturro has been in over 60 movies. He's in a lot of collaborations with Adam Sandler, the Cohen brothers, and whatnot, and he- to that end, he was in Raging Bull, The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, he was in Mr. Deeds, he was in Anger Management, The Secret Window, You Don't Mess With the Zohan, he provided a voice for Cars too. he was in Exodus, Gods and Kings, where he played the Pharaoh, and his most recent film to come out is coming up here real soon, he's going to be playing Carmine Falcone in The Batman. The character of Glenn, who is one of the hackers, is portrayed by Anthony Anderson. Now, Anthony Anderson, I believe I've talked about him before on this show. Uh, he was in Life, Romeo Must Die, Big Mama's House, Me, Myself, and Irene, Sea spot Run, Exit Wounds, Kangaroo Jack, Hustle and Flow, The Departed, and quite a few others since then. Uh, probably his best-known TV run he had was as a, a police officer on Law & Order, one of the detectives on the original Law & Order, which is actually making a comeback. I don't know if he's going to be returning on that or not. That seems to be one of those things we're just going to have to wait and see. The character of Maggie, who is a former like NSA agent that has been hired by the Pentagon in this movie... By Rachel Taylor. Rachel Taylor was in Ceno Evil, Man Thing, and Shudder. Television wise, she was in TV's Grey's Anatomy, and she also appeared throughout the Netflix Marvel series as Trish Walker. Rachel Taylor got to use her natural Australian accent for this movie, which she was very thankful for because she did not get to do that for quite some time while acting on big and smaller screens, so she was thrilled to be able to not have to mask herself in that regard. Secretary of Defense John Keller is played by John Voigt. Now, John Voigt is just about acting royalty, he has been in a tremendous amount of movies. Uh, he was in Midnight Cowboy, Runaway Train, Deliverance. He appeared in Anaconda, Enemy of the State. He was the coach in Varsity Blues. He played Howard Cosell in Ali and did a fantastic job in that. He did Holes. He was in uh, Manchurian Candidate. And he's also appeared in the, in the National Treasure Series. I love John Voigt. I don't believe George actually bought his car, but I love John Voigt. If you don't know that, that is a Seinfeld reference. Some of you older folks who listen in, some of them are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Like if you're in your 30s, like me, or older, you're going to recognize that immediately. The character of Ron Whitwicky, who is actually Sam Whitwicky's father, is played by Kevin Dunn. Now, Kevin Dunn is a character actor. He has been in almost 100 movies, just had a big part here and there including Ghostbusters 2, Hot Shots, he was in Nixon, he was in The Sixth Man, he was in Godzilla, the 1998 Sony Tri-Stars Godzilla, that is. He was in Small Soldiers, Almost Heroes, The Gridiron Gang, Unstoppable, Warrior, and Draft Day. We've talked about Warrior on this podcast before. If you have not listened to that episode, feel free. It was within the first 15 or 20 episodes I did. I had a lot of fun doing that one. Judy Whitwicky, who is the mother of Sam Whitwicky, is played by Julie White. Now, Julie White has... uh She's only been in a few movies of note, like Lincoln, The Astronaut Farmer, Monsters vs. Aliens, and Our Idiot Brother. Television-wise, she was in Grace Under Fire for quite some time, while also appearing in Go On. Finally, the character of Bobby Bolivia, Uncle Bobby B, the car dealer that Shia LaBeouf buys Bubba from, was played by the late, great Bernie Mac. Bernie Mac died in 2008. I love that man. In addition to the Bernie Mac show, he was in Who's the Man? Above the Rim, Don't Be a Man of South Central. He was in Life. He was in the Ocean's Eleven series. He was in Bad Santa. Guess Who? Pride. Old Dog. Soul Man. Uh, he appeared briefly in the Charlie's Angels movie. He. What's the worst that could happen? Screwed. He, he's He's a fantastic actor, and I, I greatly miss the fact that that man is now gone. He, he was absolutely outstanding. Now, that's the main human cast. We get on to the Autobots. The character of Optimus Prime was voiced by Peter Cullen. Now, Peter Cullen... Film-wise, provided the vocal effects for King Kong in the 1976 King Kong film. He provided vocal effects in Gremlins. He was a voice in the movie Galavance, which is the movie I'll talk about at some point on my retrospective review. Uh, He provided the vocal effects and the voice for the Predator in the movie Predator when he finally speaks to Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was always, in almost every single media you can find, Transformers, he has voiced Optimus Prime. He's also voiced Eeyore for the past 30 years character of Bumblebee was uh, portrayed by, voiced by Mark Ryan. He has two lines in the entire movie, but he is a, an actor, and voice actor, and he was goofing off in one of the sound booths, and they're like, you know what, we like how your voice sounds, we'll go ahead and use you for this. Uh, he provided the, the voice of him in, he was in Charlie's Angels. rather, he was in, for the Prestige, Jazz, uh, te- Television's Black sales, and he actually got to voice Bumblebee a little bit more in, fir- in, the, the, in sorry, that is the last night I'm thinking of. He was in the movie First Night. The character Jazz was played by Darius McCrary. Now, Darius McCrary, of course, is best known without any kind of a question as Eddie Winslow in Family Matters, the old television show that had Steve Urkel on it. Film-wise, though, he has been in other things. He's been in Kingdom Come, he's been in Saw 6, and he's also been in a number of of, uh, theatrical productions as well. The Autobot Ratchet was voiced by Robert Foxworth. Now, Robert Foxworth was in a long list of things, which include The Mod Squad, the 1973 Frankenstein as Dr. Frankenstein, He was in Airport 77, and he also had a recurring role on Law & Order SVU for about five years. I say he had a recurring role for about five years. It wasn't like he was in almost every other episode or anything like that. It was like a couple of times a season, pretty much. The Autobot Ironhide was voiced by Jess Harnell. Now, Jess Harnell also voiced Barricade, who was in Decepticon. There's a lot of things that Jess Harnell has provided little voices here and there for. The only thing that you're immediately going to recognize him in, he was wacko the Animaniacs. Now that we get just to the Decepticons alone, Megatron was voiced by Hugo Weaving, and I'm going to explain that one in a little bit as well. Uh, Hugo Weaving, of course, has been in a long list of things. He was in Babe, The Matrix, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, V for Vendetta, Wolfman. He He was the original Red Skull in the MCU in the first Captain America movie. I've had discussions with my friend Ian about this, it seems that some of the best work that Hugo Weaving has gotten to do in his career is when you don't get to see his face. Red Skull, V for Vendetta, the voice he didn't bathe. Like, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. The Decepticon Frenzy was played by Reno Wilson. Now, Reno Wilson has been a couple of different things. He was in Sergeant Bilko. He played one of the poachers in Mighty Joe Young, and he was also in the Crank Series. However, if you are any kind of sitcom watcher, you will recognize him. He was in Mike and Molly. He was in 127 episodes of Mike and Molly. Finally, the voice of Starscream was Charlie Adler. Now, Charlie Adler provided a lot of voices on the original animated Transformers series, the G1 series. Most notably, Silverbolt. In addition to that, however, he provided the voice for Buster Bunny in Tiny Toons. He voiced both Ed and Bev Bighead in *Rocco's Modern Life, as well as the character of Ickes on A Real Monsters. And in the one episode, you see Ickes in an episode of *The Rugrats. He provided voices on Two Stupid Dogs and many, many, many more. In addition to this, there were multiple actors that had, I don't want to call them bit parts, but they were smaller parts, and they're, they're really of note in this. Uh, Michael O'Neill, best known for his appearance in Dallas Buyers Club, or probably most recently well-known, uh, played Banachek, who is the head of Sector 7, the one guy that is above Seymour Simmons. Amari Nolasco, probably best known as Fernando Sucre in Prison Break, and Zach Ward who played the older brother in Freddy vs. Jason, who was killed, you get to see him for a moment in the tub when uh, one of the guys falls asleep, appeared as members of Lennox's team. William Morgan Shepard, who passed away in 2019, best known for portraying a historical figure in Gettysburg, as well as being the narrator in Gettysburg, briefly portrayed Captain Archibald Whitwicky, the great-grandfather of Sam Whitwicky, Great-great-grandfather, I'm sorry. Finally, Travis Van Winkle played Michaela's ex-boyfriend. Now... That's important because his name is Trent DeMarco. Travis Van Winkle played the exact same character, Trent DeMarco, in the reboot of Friday the 13th, which was also produced by Michael Bay. This means that the reboot of Friday the 13th takes place in the same world as Transformers. I find it kind of odd that nobody in that entire movie mentions it, but that's just me. The last one that you're going to really recognize, uh, he his name is Glenn Morshower, and he appeared as the Colonel Sharp at the beginning of the movie at the Sox and bass guitar. Virtually any time you see a military man in a movie, that is not an actor, it's going to be this guy. He was in the Men Who Stare at Goats. He was in X Men First Class. He was in Battleship. The guy's been in a lot, and he is a former military man himself, so it, it fits. It's kind of like how Arlie Ermey uh, got his start in movies because he was a drill sergeant they brought in to try and help out on the set of Full Metal Jacket. The last thing I'm going to give you for the cast here is I'm actually going to tell you what the vehicles themselves were that the Autobots and Decepticons were. I don't know if you're genuinely interested in that or not, but this is something that I found kind of interesting. Optimus Prime was uh, a 1994 Peterbilt 379. Bumblebee began as a 1977 Camaro, but later on scans a 2007 Camaro. As a side note, after this movie came out, I saw at least a dozen of these Camaros driving around within the first couple months. So people absolutely bought it because of the movie. Jazz was a 2007 Pontiac Solstice. Ratchet was a 2007 Search and Rescue Hummer H2 Ambulance. Ironhide was a 2007 GMC Topkick C4500. That is a giant amount of truck that is not a CDL truck. Uh, Bone Crusher was a Buffalo H mine protected vehicle military vehicle. Barricade was a 2007 saline S-281 police car. Starscream was a Lockheed Martin F-22 Raptor. Megatron is the only one that is not anything else. He's a, he's a simple Cybertronian jet. Frenzy initially begins as a PGX boombox, but later takes the form of a Nokia 8800. That is a really old cell phone that is essentially the density of a brick. Blackout was an mh 53 j Pavlo III. Uh, Brawl is an uparmed m M1A1 Abrams. And finally, we had Scorponok, who is like Megatron, the other thing that is not really anything. He's a Scorpion-like Cybertronian, Wepton, or Decepticon. That's it for the cast. So if you remember just a few minutes back, I mentioned that I was going to talk more about the producers when we get to the actual production and development of the movie. You're about to find out why. Uh, Don Murphy, who produced Natural Born Killers, Real Steel, and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, among others. And Tom DeSanta, who is known for Ringers, Lord of the Fans, uh, X-Men, and X2. Those were the main producers for this. Don Murphy had long planned on making a G.I. Joe live-action film. However, after the U.S. launched their invasion to Iraq in 2003, Hasbro instead kind of suggested, like, instead of making a G.I. Joe movie, why why don't you make a Transformers movie? They didn't want to be seen as capitalizing on current social events, especially something as potentially ugly as a war. And I get that. Tom DeSanto joined him shortly thereafter as he was a massive fan of the original series and said something to the effect of, In all the years of movie making, I don't think the image of a truck turning into a 20-foot-tall robot has been adapted on screen. This is true. He also wanted to make an homage to the 80s and bring back a sense of wide-eyed wonder for children in this kind of a movie. And like, this is, a, this is something that we haven't really gotten to see in a while. Like, everything's become so CGI and action heavy and just blah, 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 expected, expected, expected. He wanted it to really be different. Together, they met with Simon Furman, who is best known for his work on the Transformers comics, who has done a lot of work on the Transformers comics from a G1 perspective and afterward. And they've used his G1 comics as their main influence for it. They chose the creation matrix as their plot device, which, of course, creation matrix is how you create more, New Autobots, new Decepticons, and could also potentially restore Cybertron. However, because of the Matrix film series, they didn't want to call it that, because you got to realize this came out only a few years after the last Matrix movie. They were nervous about that, so instead they called it the All-Spar. DeSanto wrote the treatment from a human perspective to, to try and get the, engage the audience with, while Murphy wanted to make it more similar in realistic tone to like a disaster kind of movie. The initial treatments that they were written included the Autobots Prowl, RC, and Wheeljack, as well as the Decepticons Soundwave, Ravage, Laserbeak, Rumble, Skywarp, and Shockwave, all of whom would eventually appear in subsequent movies. Spielberg, having been a fan of the comics and collector of the toys for years, signed on to executive produce, and actually is the one who asked Michael Bay to direct the film in July of 2005. Michael Bay initially dismissed it as a, nothing more than a quote-unquote stupid toy movie. However, visiting with executives at Hasbro. He gained a bit of a new respect for the franchise, read through some of the comics, and he'd also wanted to work with Spielberg for a while, so by mid-August he had signed on. John Rogers wrote the first draft of the film. All right, so yes, DeSanto and uh, Murphy are the ones who wrote the treatments. The first official draft of the film was written by John Rogers. He wanted to pit four Autobots and four Decepticons against one another and included the Ark spacecraft, the, the mythical Ark that brought the Autobots and Decepticons to Earth. Orsi and Kurtzman, who were fans of the cartoon, signed on for rewrites in February of 2005. During the process of their rewrites, Steven Spielberg suggested to kind of ground it as a story about a boy in his car. They, he felt like that should really be the focus of it, which appealed to them as well as a means of conveying themes of like adulthood, responsibility, growing up. These are things that, for a long time, has been associated with, when you turn 16, getting your own first car. It's a really strong way to try and connect people to that, of there's a responsibility that comes with that, and this is just that responsibility massively multiplied. That initial treatment that was written, Sam and Michaela were the only point of view that you see in the film. The Transformers had no dialogue as the writers were concerned that the talking robots would look ridiculous. However, there comes a Catch-22 with that, because they also admitted that while that was their initial thought, they felt that the fan base could and likely would feel betrayed by this. And this... You can't have a Transformers movie without the Transformers talking. You just... You can't. You know, that's, that's the whole concept of them. They're not just these big destructive robots who are silent. I think that played a part in why Bumblebee does not speak, Honestly throughout most of the movie also that initial draft included a significant battle scene to take place at the Grand Canyon uh, Spielberg read through what they had written out and he he suggested edits to each draft here and there and between them and everything the writers remained very involved throughout development they added dialogue for the Transformers throughout during the sound mixing of the film um, most of it was not used, if not none of it was used that they added here and there. And the final film actually ended up being 15 minutes shorter than the initial plan had been for it. They used Furman's ultimate guide as a primary resource throughout the development. Because, I mean, if you've got if you've got access to a guy who has written G1 Transformers-type com- comics for the better part of, at this point, 10 years, you'd be a fool not to use that at, at to use that resource, you know? That's like if you're trying to rebuild a Pontiac uh, Firebird from the 1970s. If your uncle was a mechanic in the 70s, you'd be a fool not to ask him for his assistance or for his input on things. You know what I mean? Funny enough, a placeholder title, like a fake-out title, was Prime Directive, which is the name of a serious arc in the comics. When Bay signed on, he read the draft that they had written and felt that it was far too kid-friendly. He increased the presence and role of the military throughout the film, and they decided to use G.I. Joe characters as bases for the military characters they were using, while being very careful not to overtly homage or reference them, to try not to mix both brands together. G.I. Joe and Transformers have crossed over in the past, but at this juncture, it probably was for the best to not do so, and I agree with that. That all being said, Orsi and Kurtzman really didn't want the film to feel like it was quote-unquote recruitment bait for the military. There's a lot of movies that get made that people watch and they're like, oh man, I want to join the military for that and I want to do this and I want to do that. Because of that, they wrote that the military was to believe that nations like Iran and Iraq were behind the attack as well as making the majority of the Decepticons military vehicles. I guess that's one way to try and prevent your thing from being used as military bait. i as a funny note on this one, Michael Bay based the struggle to get a hold of the Pentagon that you see Lennox and his crew having while dealing with Scorponok. like they're, they're struggling to get a hold, get through the Pentagon because they have a really unhelpful operator trying to walk them through everything like, do you want this? Do you want this? Sir, help. that is not going to help anybody at all. He based that on a real story that a soldier had told him that had happened to him while he was trying to get through to someone. The soldier had told him about that while working on another film. He thought that was perfect, and it's a good idea. They they needed to put a certain amount of levity in the film, and that's a perfect little levitous moment to let you know, like, yes, this is serious and people are getting hurt, but it's still it's an it's something to enjoy. You know what I mean? Orson and Kurtzman experimented with numerous different Autobots and Decepticons for their the film. Like they wanted, they weren't sure who they wanted to use here, there, here, there. Ultimately, they ended up going with those that were the most popular amongst the filmmakers and the people that were there for the final cast. And the reason they had to go ahead and do that is that Hasbro had to start making toys. That was the whole deal behind this, was that if you guys are making this movie, Hasbro wants to make toys to try and capitalize Because Hasbro was trying to get... Tra- Transformers at one point was a big mover for Hasbro. It, it always kind of stayed a mover for them, but it was a big mover for them in the 80s and early 90s. Like when I discovered Beast Wars. Because of that, most of the Decepticons were chosen before names or roles were developed on them. And because of that, they also changed some names when they would get leaked, because Michael Bay didn't like the fact that, oh, you're leaking, that we're using Soundwave. Well, now we're not using Soundwave, we're going to use this. I can't imagine that made this an easy process. The only Autobots and Decepticons that were present throughout every various script and draft written of this film were Optimus Prime, Megatron, Starscream and bumblebee a lot of people that i know that were big fans of the franchise growing up were never hugely drawn to bumblebee hot rod is who they were drawn to rc is who they were drawn to bumblebee was never like their main like i want to go to for whatever reason they chose bumblebee to be the one that they would go with and on that note rc was actually planned on being in the film the reason she was cut, and yes, it is a she, was because Michael Bay thought that describing or depicting gender in a robot would be difficult to pull off. And he also didn't like the small motorcycle form that she was. He felt that it kind of took away from the sense of grandiosity that they were going for with these giant machines to have one that's only slightly bigger than uh, Shia LaBeouf and the rest of them. Now, they eventually used R.C. in the films, but... I, It's one other thing I disagree with Michael Bay about, but I'm not here to bash Michael Bay. He also had the concept of a coordinated worldwide Decepticon strike cut out of the film. I think that was for the best because when you only have a handful of Autobots in the film, and it's really largely explained that there are very few Autobots left and that they've kind of been hunted down and killed by Decepticons over the years since the war in Cybertron, if you have Decepticons launch a coordinated worldwide scale attack, that's kind of difficult to deal with. And I think they kind of explore that a little bit when you get to Dark of the Moon. You remember how I, I said towards the beginning about the budget being between two, 150 and $200 million? The producers have claimed that it was a bargain that it only cost $150 million to make. The reason this is disputed is that multiple... Different people have looked into the pot in the making of this film and say that it is far more likely that it costs $200 million, if not more, and the reason why they wanted to report it being lower was that it would, in turn, risk a greater cost on their future projects. That makes sense. Like, I, I, I get that. I do. Filmmakers, they, they really went all the way on the, the robot forms. They wanted to make sure that they corresponded in size with the vehicle forms. And this was done also done to provide like a bit of a rationale for why the transformers chose the vehicles they chose on earth. If you've got a 16 foot long police vehicle and it turns into a 26 foot tall robot that that doesn't quite add up and it kind of, it with them going for a sense of realism here and there, I get that uh, they wanted them to be sure to look alien as well like they had these protoforms that they ran before they would get before they found their all their forms to get into, and they didn't want them to look blocky like the G1 transformers. They took inspiration from samurai depictions or the armor for how their transform states would look when they had like aspects of the cars and vehicles on them. They just they, they wanted to go away from the typical Hollywood robots. To that end, General Motors reached a product placement deal with them. They provided the vehicle alternate forms for the Autobots and Decepticons what vehicles that were not military that the Decepticons needed that is, as well as all of the various cars that get destroyed in the different battle scenes that we see, most of which were either flood damaged or non-resellable. By doing this they actually saved the production over three million dollars. The U.S. Armed Forces also provided a lot of support. They wanted to enhance the realism. For example, this is the first time on film that an F-22 F117s and V20 uh, uh, v V-2, sorry V22 Ospreys are seen like are used in a film on screen like that they use soldiers as extras they went with authentic uniforms i mean there's an A10 Thunderbolt 2 there's A10 Thunderbolt 2s. there's Lockheed AC-130s and to that end a, mil- a US military captain Hodge actually had to explain to superiors when they were filming why the vehicles were mostly villains considering they were all military vehicles. However, it was stated that it wasn't as much of a problem with Superiors because everybody loves the bad guys anyway. Well, that is what that is. When it came time to film this baby, Michael Bay actually reduced his usual fee by over 30% to help save money, while simultaneously planning an 83-day shoot. That is nearly 50 days shorter than a typical action movie shoot like this would get the reason they were able to get this done as quickly as they were and still make it look good was by using a lot more camera setups per day than normal. So instead of having three cameras facing one angle and then two facing different angles, they'd have like five or six facing multiple angles and multiple scenes being shot simultaneously. He also chose to film this movie domestically in the United States instead of in Australia or Canada because he wanted to keep a familiar crew that's familiar with his work ethic and how he wants things done. They did a pre-shoot on April 19th in 2006, to try and, like, get things set up. And then principal photography began April 22nd. Holloman Air Force Base in Alamogordo, New Mexico, stood in for Qatar, for the the military base they have in Qatar at the beginning of the film. All of the structures that the Decepticon Blackout destroys were not owned by the military. They were purchased from a private military manufacturer for the purpose to destroy them. On that same token, the scene where Scorponok destroys the village and all that... Fighting gets done there. That was done at the White Sands Missile Range. They conducted sweeps to remove any unexploded ordnance, and then built and blew up the village anyway. I get it. You can't have unexploded ordnance in the ground because if Tyrese steps on a landmine, that's going to be national news. If Josh Duhamel trips over a tripwire and gets impaled by something, you know what I'm trying to say? Like that's I I completely get that. It's just it's ironic that it got destroyed to begin with. They used actual air battle managers flying aboard AWACS that would then improvise their dialogue as if it were an actual battle in that end scene where they're uh, surrounding and taking out Scorponok. They did shoot on location at Hoover Dam and at the Pentagon, which actually made them the first crew to be allowed to be at and film at these locations since (laughs) 9-11. They did the Hoover Dam external shots, before the arrival of the tourists at about 10 a.m. and then moved inside for the remainder of the day. The Hughes Aircraft Building in Playa Vista, California, was used to house the hangar where Megatron is imprisoned, in in prison, which is inside of Hoover Dam, technically. They took six weekends to film in Los Angeles for the climactic final battle. Some elements of this they shot at Universal Studios' backlot in Los Angeles, while also using Detroit's... Central Station in Michigan, their their train station. They also were allowed to film at the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles, which is right around where the Hollywood sign is. The Griffith Observatory had been closed for renovation since 2002. It would not reopen until November of 2006, nearly one month after filming Wrath on October 4th. Funny enough, I noticed this when I saw it in theaters, and I noticed it every time I watch it when I'm at home. They reuse certain scenes from planes getting blown up or buildings getting bombed from Pearl Harbor in this movie. They're they're both Michael Bay movies. I I get it. They can't exactly use Armageddon because of the asteroids, but using something where military bombs and bullets and ordinances going off, that, that makes sense. CGI was restricted to the robots and background elements in the action scenes. There's a scene on the battle on the highway that takes place where... One of the Decepticons transforms, charges through a moving bus, and then tackles Optimus Prime. The scene with the vehicle driving through the bus was filmed practically with an actual vehicle, an empty bus, and numerous cameras to try and make it look as realistic as possible. They also began developing animatronics in April 2005 for any close-up shots of Scorponok's tail when it's loose, uh, Individual scenes where they interact with Frenzy, things like that. Bay Industries... but Sorry. Bay has indicated, not Industries, I'm so sorry, that's right underneath the word Industries. I, you guys, I write notes for these, and sometimes my own handwriting baffles me for a moment. It doesn't happen often, but it does sometimes. Anyway, Michael Bay has indicated that roughly three quarters of the effects were done by Industrial Lights and Magic. While Digital Domain, which is a frequent collaborator with not only Michael Bay, but Peter Jackson and James Cameron, did the rest. Including in that were like the Arctic Discovery of Megatron, where Archibald Whitwick finds him, and the protoforms of the Autobots. Many of the animators were big fans of the original Transformers, and they were given free reign to experiment with that. To that end, Bay and ILM went all in. They were, there were multiple fight scenes that you see that they would take inspiration from classic movies on, for example. Industrial Lights and Magic developed the transforming sequences for six months in 05, going from actually trying to follow the laws of physics at first, which was felt to be not entertaining enough and too boring-looking, to the more fluid-looking final transformations we get now. They also initially decided they were going to have more of like a liquid metal facial system. To describe that, think if they were to do the T-1000 now. Like, that's, that's kind of what they were going for. Michael Bay rejected that. He wanted to go with more of a Rubik's Cube style where you see like the facial parts or very visibly moving parts. Because of that, he wanted as many mechanical pieces visible to make it a more realistic and dynamic, quick, interesting look. He didn't want them to look like the lumbering beasts and blocky robots they were in the animated movies, in the animated series. Uh, This included keeping the wheels on the ground as they would begin to transform for as long as possible. That way they could not only cruise while they were doing it, but it's more of a visual entertaining thing for you to see while it's happening. Animators were also instructed to observe and study martial artists and martial arts films in addition to taking the, what inspiration they took from fight scenes from classical movies. They studied these in order to give them more of a realistic, more fluid approach, a more graceful approach to fighting. This is one of the most intricately done CGI effects movies I have ever seen. I have INTRICATE written down in all caps, underlined multiple times. For example, it took 17 moving, visible parts just to turn an Autobot's wrist. Ironhide's guns had over 10,000 parts. Bumblebee, like, the way they built his face, they did so to not only make him capable of smiling, raising an eyebrow... All the characters' eyes were able to be to dilate, to brighten, to dim, like. According to Michael Bay, Industrial Eyes and Magic spent 38 hours to render just one frame of movement. 38 hours for one frame. ILM had to increase their processing facilities to do this. I believe they almost tripled the amount of, uh, not retail, um resources and systems that they use for that, which has only helped further movies going on and not just in this franchise. Each individual piece on the Transformers had to look like real metal, whether it was shiny or dull. That became difficult to model because some of the aged or battle-scarred Autobots or Decepticons had to be able to turn into clean-looking cars. You know, they sped up the close shots to give them more of like a clean or coolish kind of look, while the wider shots, they actually slowed it down to increase the sense of weight in what you're seeing. Because, I mean, these are... A Peterbilt weighs over 12 tons, for God's sake. Photographs were taken of each and every set for reference on this for the lighting purposes. That way, when they reproduce them in the computers to give the Transformers and the Autobots and everything the way they're moving around, it makes them look like they're convincingly moving around on the screen. Like, this is one of those movies where it, they, they look as realistic as you would expect them to look. One of the other things that really helped them in this was the fact that Michael Bay had directed numerous car commercials throughout his career. He knew that ray tracing, like tracing using taking an image, breaking it down, putting rays along the lines, ah, sorry, that's an important thing. Like it's key to realism. Like you can pull up still shots of development where you see the Peterbilt truck that is Optimus, and then it's like an x ray inside where you see how Optimus' arms are positioned inside, how his legs are, his torso, his head position. CG models, they needed to be able to reflect the environment because some of them had really shiny metal, and they did in their bodies, and it helped them look even more real. To that end, dozens upon dozens of simulations were programmed into the robot systems for each individual robot so that they had a base to work from and it gave the animators the ability to focus on areas of animation for convincing performance. If you've already got, like, let's say you have your robot, you have it programmed in how it's going to look, if it stands up, if it crouches over, if it does a tuck and roll, if it spins, if it throws a punch, if it throws a kick, you can then take that rest of that energy that you would normally put towards animating that and add aspects of, like, armor opening up, then pulling out a gun as they're rolling, facial expressions changing, mouths moving if they're talking, things like that it really added to a very convincing look and performance of these movies. Musically, Steven Yablonski and Hans Zimmer worked on the score. If you are familiar with movie scores of any kind, you know the name Hans Zimmer is extreme Hans Zimmer's going to end up being this generation's uh, John Williams by the time he's all said and done. Linkin Park and the Goo Goo Dolls licensed some music for the film and for the soundtrack. There have been... Linkin Park songs in every single Transformers movie up to the death of Chester Bennington. It was initially released July 3rd of 2007 worldwide. There were some smaller premieres in the weeks before in Los Angeles and in Rhode Island. The one in Rhode Island is important because people were allowed to watch the movie quote-unquote for free by buying a $75 donation towards charities and whatnot, which that's actually a brilliant thing to do because it tricks people into thinking that they're paying for something else while getting something in exchange. But they're really... I don't mean tricks in the bad sense, I promise on that. (laughs) From a marketing perspective, Hasbro made toys for two months in late 05 and early 06. They did not release them until May 1st of 2007. They included multiple characters that were not in the film... Certain parts of these Autobots would automatically move when you would go to undo them from their vehicle forms to try and make it be like a quicker transformation. In addition to Hasbro making the toys, they made deals with over 200 companies for commercials. These ranged from General Motors, Panasonic, Burger King, Pepsi. They sold props on eBay. They did a massive viral marketing campaign that included a viral like online game, one of the earlier viral online games you could play. It also featured a cameo appearance from Bumblebee. They made over $480 million off the merchandise for this film alone in 2007. That merchandise, in addition to all the toys, included tie-in comics, books, and a video game. I actually owned the video game. I enjoyed it until you get to the Hoover Dam, and then there's like an impossible damn mission in this dam. You have to try and get to Megatron before Frenzy does to restore him with to get to the Allspark. And you just, it's it's difficult to do. Like, he moves, because he's so small, he can move a lot quicker through little areas and you're forced to drive around things. You can transform, but you can only go through certain things when you transform because the environments aren't full. I'm getting off track here. I enjoyed the game. (laughs) Let's just leave it at that. Box office-wise, this movie had the highest per screen, per theater gross in North America in 2007, preview sales hit 8 million alone. The opening day itself it made 27.8 million dollars. That set a record that stood until The Amazing Spider-Man. That's the Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man. He's one of the best spider man but I'm not getting into that right now. Broke it in 2012. It also broke the record for spot for the July 4th re- uh, record for a release that had previously been held by Spider-Man 2. That's the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. So it beat Tobey, but could not beat Andrew Garfield. Hmm. It opened in over 4,000 theaters in North America, grossing $70 million its opening weekend and $155.4 million its opening week. This made it the number one film and the biggest opening week for a non-sequel at this time. It made more than 50% more than what Paramount had expected it to do, and Paramount believes a lot of this and attributes a lot of this to kid-friendly word of mouth. When I say kid-friendly, I mean people saying, "Did you take your kids to see the new Transformers movie?" Oh, I don't know if they're going to like that. Oh no, it's perfectly friendly for the kids. Like there's the, none of the deaths are as bad as think. Like it, it's fine. It's 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 fine. Made over three hundred nineteen point two million in the U.S. and Canada overall, which made it the third highest in the markets that year, behind Spider-Man Three and Shrek the Third. All told. 46,402,100 tickets were sold in North America. Three of those were mine. It was released in 10 different international markets on June 28, 2007, before its worldwide release. It made $29.5 million on that first weekend, $5.2 million in Malaysia, which actually caused it to be the most successful film in that country's history. China got it on July eighth, and it was only behind Titanic at that time, with $37.3 million at its box office. That record has since long since been broken by the Avengers movies and whatnot, so that is what that is. Worldwide, it was the highest-grossing non-sequel in 2007, bringing in $709.7 million. This is Michael Bay's fourth-highest-grossing film to date. It was initially his highest-grossing film to date. It was passed by sequels of this movie. The only Michael Bay movies that have made more money than Transformers are other Transformers movies. It was the fifth highest grossing of the year in total behind Pirates of the Caribbean At World's End, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, and of course, Spider-Man 3 and Shrek the Third. The visual effects and the sound were heavily, heavily praised. Near universally praised, as a matter of fact. The human stories were a little criticized, and it brought a lot of new fans into the fold and revitalized interest in Transformers as a whole. Not only did it do that, it revived interest in making live-action films of Voltron and Robotech, and I'm holding out hope for Voltron. The only thing that's going to irritate me is when eventually that happens, there's going to be some people going, oh, they're just doing what Power Rangers did. Well, no, no, they're not. (laughs) Many people actually in the military, believe it or not, were very thankful for this movie because they felt that some of the scenes involving the military actually helped them get their children to understand what their job was, where they were going, who they were dealing with. Obviously, they're not actually dealing with giant alien robot life forms, but that's not the point there. The point is that they were able to use it to help themselves out. At the 80th Academy Awards, it was nominated for the Oscar for Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Visual Effects. It lost the sound editing and sound mixing to the Bourne Ultimatum and lost the visual effects to the Golden Compass. I eventually plan on talking about The Golden Compass because my grandmother got me the His Dark Materials books and when I heard they were making a movie about The Golden Compass I wanted to see it. I left that theater very upset with it because it was in no way, shape, or form resembling the books that I read. I do not understand how it beat Transformers for best visual effects. The only explanation I can think of is that the Academy did not want to give it to a damn Transformers movie. Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Science Fiction Film, which it lost to Cloverfield. I understand that one. Uh, it did, however, win Best Special Effects at the Saturn Awards. That all being said, um, it, it was not universally praised in any regard. Like, yes, the sound and the visual effects were heavily praised. Initial fans, like original fans we're kind of torn over the redesigns of the characters, the voices that they're... And this is something that I've heard repeatedly seeing other movies in the theaters. Like, for example, Revenge of the Fall, in the second movie. When I went and saw that, I went and saw it with a co-worker, and we saw another co-worker of ours who happened to be there as well. When we left the movie, he said, I will never watch another Transformers movie. I will never buy another Transformer. To hell with Michael Bay. And we asked him what was wrong, and he just went in this long-winded tirade about everything that was wrong with it. The only thing that I felt was wrong with it was... Well, I mean... I felt a lot of things were wrong with uh, Revenge of the Fallen, but the main thing I felt that was wrong with Revenge of the Fallen was the fact that at one point, Devastator is taking apart the pyramid to recreate that that beam to bring Cybertron. While his parts are separate and fighting Autobots in the village. We're not talking about the Wrecking Ball scrotum thing that they gave it, because that, that just irrationally angers me. That all being said, the fans were very pleased that Peter Cullen came back as... Optimus Prime. Peter Cullen himself said that returning to voice Optimus Prime, because this was the first time he had voiced Optimus Prime in a very long time, felt like putting on a very old, very comfortable pair of shoes that he had forgotten that he had had. The original voice for Megatron is Frank Welker. Frank Welker, you know, he provides vocal effects for pretty much any animal or beast that you see in in movies or animated movies or cartoons. I talked about that in Anastasia, about him providing vocal effects for the dog, Pooka. Um, he also, to me, one of the more famous ones he did was he was vocal effects for Bronx and Gargoyles. Michael Bay thought that his voice was not menacing and threatening enough to fit the tone of the movie, and that's why he did not want him to voice Megatron. That's why they went with Hugo Weaving. I disagree with that statement, because when you get to... Age of Extinction, where Galvatron finally shows up, and it's clearly Megatron, but he's been reborn as Galvatron. When Prime stabs him through where his spark should be and it doesn't hurt him, he says, you have no soul. The way that he goes back and says, that is why I have no fear. The very visceral, threatening way he says that conveys the menace and the danger of the character. So, I honestly, I completely disagree with what Michael Bay did with that. One of the other funny things is that Howard Stern was apparently initially offered Frenzy and actually considered it. His agent is the one who talked him out of it. I mean, it's probably best for some people that he didn't get it because, me personally, I would not have been able to hear Frenzy talk without saying, oh, Boba Bowie. <laughs> it uh, launched its own cinematic universe. We have gotten four direct sequels. The first three did very well at the box office despite negative reviews. The fifth film was considered a financial failure, comparatively speaking. Bumblebee came out in 2018 and was extremely well received. And in fact, a lot of people have rated it as the best movie out of the series. I saw Bumblebee. I stayed home sick from work one day and I was on Hulu and I'm like, yeah, why not? And I watched it. I really enjoyed it. I I don't look at it the same way as I look at Transformers, because it's like, I, I hate I hate, I hate hate to use the word origin story, but that's kind of what it is. Revenge of the Fallen, the first sequel, came out June 24th, 2009. Its budget was between $2 and $210 million, whereas the box office pulled $836.3 million in. Dark of the Moon, the third movie, followed on June 29th of 2011. Its budget was only $195 million, while pulling in $1.124 billion at the box office. Age of Extinction, which is my personally second favorite movie out of the whole bunch, came out June 27, 2014. Its budget was $210 million, and it pulled in $1.104 billion at the box office, while The Last Night, which came out June 21st, 2017, the budget on this movie is raised between 217 and $260 million. The box office it pulled in was only 605.4 million. While that is a financial success compared to its budget, it is considered a financial failure because it is the lowest grossing out of the straight up Transformers movies. That being said, Bumblebee came out December 21st of 2018. Its budget was 102 to 135 million and it pulled in 468 million at the box office. So while its box office return was actually lower than the last night Percentage-wise, it was higher. The estimated total budget of these films, these Transformers films, is between $924,000,000 $1.01 billion. Its estimated total box office is, 400, is $4,137,700,000, give or take. This does not include any home media or merchandise, because... As I said, the merchandise that came off of the first movie was $480 million, not to mention the fact that the home media also pulled in around $300 million as well. There is a seventh movie planned, Transformers Rise of the Beasts. It is currently planned for June 9th, 2023. That one I'm really looking forward to because that's going to include Maximals and Predacons. And I discovered Transformers through Beast Wars. I have always been attached to Optimus Primal, Dinobot, that version of Megatron, Pterosaur, Cheetor, Rattrap, Rhinox, all of them. So I'm very, very excited about that. I'm even more excited considering Ron Perlman will be voicing Optimus Primal. That is going to be outstanding. This movie's had a pretty big impact on cinema. They created sounds for this movie that did not exist beforehand. That have since been used in other movies. I love this movie. I unironically, unabashedly love the first Transformers movie. Objectively speaking, it is a good movie. It gets lumped in for a lot of people who don't like Michael Bay with his movies of that resort, so while I get that dislike, I personally, I'm able to suspend my issues with Michael Bay to enjoy this film. I. I'm probably going to watch it again here really soon. If not, as soon as I finish recording this, I may go pop it in. I don't know yet. Um, But this is episode 41 on Transformers. I had a lot of fun researching this one, looking into this one. Um, I'm really looking forward to next week. Next week, we're going to be covering the 2008 Iron Man. Look, I know I said I was going to be staying away from the MCU for most of my show. And I mean that. I still will. This will probably be the only real MCU film film that I cover. But the reason I want to cover that is because this movie had been in development hell as early as 1990. They had been wanting to make a film out of this for decades before it finally got made. And there's some very interesting stuff that went into making it that will have a ripple effect throughout the MCU in general with its multiverse coming up. So. But, anyway... This was episode 41 on Transformers. Next week will be episode 42 on Iron Man. I hope you enjoyed listening. I hope you learned something. Even if you didn't learn something, I still hope you enjoyed listening. I am Kid Kong. I will see you at the movies. And y'all have a wonderful, wonderful winter week. Take care.